Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 10. As we resume our series in the Gospel of Mark, we're looking at Mark chapter 10. And we'll be studying today verses 32 to 45. Mark 10, 32 to 45. But I'll start off our message today by reading for us uh, verses 42 to 45. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 42 for our initial reading. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Success as a mother is tough in any age. And sometimes the particulars of excellence or success can seem to shift from generation to generation. One mom that I came across this last week lamented the current quest for maternal excellence with this following complaint. She says, being a mom in 2017 actually requires the following Today, we have to make sure that our child's academic, emotional, psychological, mental, physical, spiritual, nutritional, and social needs are met, while being careful not to overstimulate, understimulate, improperly medicate, helicopter, or neglect them in a screen-free, processed foods-free, GMO-free, negative energy-free, plastic-free, body-positive, socially conscious, egalitarian, but also authoritative, nurturing, but fostering of independence, gentle, but not overly permissive, pesticide-free, two-story, multilingual home, preferably in a cul-de-sac with a backyard, and 1.5 siblings spaced at least two years apart for proper development, and also don't forget the coconut oil. (laughs) And then she said, being a mom in every generation before that, feed them sometimes. You know, the truth is, no matter what generation you grew up in, it's always been hard and complex to be successful as a mother, as a father. These things are tough. Success is a complicated thing. And while the protocols for being a great mother may look different in different times, most mothers have been equipped by God with a drive to succeed, a willingness to do whatever it takes. Thus, this day today. Yet, this passion for excellence, this craving for competence, this desire to to get the job right, isn't just limited to mothers, is it? We all want to know how to score, what the win is, what the definition of success is, and whatever role God has given us. No one wants to be a loser, whether it be in school or in sports, or in a social scene. And most importantly, we don't want to be a failure in our spiritual journey. I mean, if we're going to follow Christ, we want to do it well. We want to do it right. So the question naturally should be, what does it look like to succeed in following Jesus? How do we know if we're doing that well? If we're meeting his expectations, if we're excelling as one of his disciples, if we're really on track with the plans that he has for us for growing the way he wants us to. If you want to know what success looks like in the spiritual looks like in the spiritual life, you need to look no farther than these middle chapters in the book of Mark. Chapters 8, 9 and 10 have been focused on what it means to follow Jesus, what it looks like. How to know if you're doing a good job, if you're following Him appropriately. And so far we've seen that it demands first and foremost for everyone here 
a recognition that Jesus is the divine Messiah, the Savior of the world, the overcomer of sin and death. If you don't understand that, you will not be successful in your spiritual walk. But in addition to that, we've also seen that there are implications of understanding that Jesus is this Messiah, Jesus is this promised King, for our everyday walk, our, our, our living. There's this inextricable relationship between our discipleship and what we understand of Jesus, our spiritual journey, and our understanding of who He is. So, in our text today that we're going to read, for the third time, Jesus is going to do two things. He's already done them two other times. He's going to explain His mission, what He's here to accomplish, and then He's going to explain what it looks like to follow Him. He once again reminds them, He's going to remind these disciples that their loyalty to Him demands a life of service, as we just read in the text. And He's going to unpack this definition of success. How to be spiritually successful, how to be great through a story. And the story today has for us three movements. I need you to catch it that way. I think it'll be the best way for you to get it. The first movement is the setting of suffering. And you'll see that in verses 32 to 34. The next movement is the self-interest of the disciples. And that's mainly occurring from verses 35 all the way down to verse 41. And then the last movement that we'll look at is the service of Jesus from verses 42 to 45. Now, these again, this is a story, but here's the one lesson. And I'll sum it up for you right here and not hold you in any suspense. Success in the spiritual journey that we're all on looks like service. Service. Service is the means to spiritual greatness. So let's see this in the story, our first movement, the setting of suffering. Beginning at verse 32, he says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Now catch the journey here so far. It says he's on the way to Jerusalem. So far from what we know in the book of Mark, Jerusalem is the source of all religious opposition to Jesus. In 3.22, we see that it was the place in which his smear campaign that he was possessed by Beelzebul began. Then in seven, chapter 7, verse 1, some guys come up from Jerusalem with this charge that Jesus is um, conducting, or is Jesus' disciples are actually conducting ministry and eating with unwashed hands. And we understand that that may seem rather petty to us, but this was just a means to discredit Jesus. So far, again, all we know of Jerusalem is people hate Jesus there. And yet, Mark portrays uh, Jesus out in front, headed to Jerusalem. Notice that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. He even wants you to note that. Luke, in his account of this, says he was determined, or he had set his face for Jerusalem. Even though this is a place of opposition, Jesus is not afraid of what's to come. And we not only see Jesus out in front, but we also see this rather ominous entourage. Notice what the text says. They were, or it says Jesus was walking ahead and they were amazed, talking about the disciples. They're blown away that Jesus is headed to this place, having already talked about suffering, knowing that people there hate him, and yet he's just leading the way. It says that there's another group of people who are walking behind them. This is very likely because it's Passover season. And there are many pilgrims who are headed to Jerusalem. And it says they're fearful. They know that something's off in this crowd. And so you're, you're getting the scene here. It's one of kind of like um, Tolkien's Frodo. You remember Frodo as he was making his way to Mordor? I mean, it was going to be a gruesome journey. It was something in which he was expecting these life-threatening situations. But the difference here between Tolkien's Frodo and the Jesus of the Bible is that Jesus is strong, he's determined, he's bold, he's ready for whatever's going to come. And while there may have been some cheery times on that walk, the Bible doesn't describe them. The gruesome conflict at the center of Jesus' earthly ministry is merely a few miles away, soon to break over the horizon. 
And then verse 32 in the second half tells us, And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Did you notice the word again? And taking the twelve again. He, again, one more time, he separates the twelve to clarify what his mission would be. Mark structures this whole section in chapters 8 through 10 around these three clarifications of Jesus' ministry. We, we hear, we've already heard these words two other times. He really wants, wants them to understand and grasp that he will suffer, he will die, he will rise again. They have to get this. They think that the Messiah is just someone who will automatically just rule and reign over everything, and they're really struggling to get the lesson that this is going to be a mission of suffering and death first. So, we also see an interesting pattern developing. Every time Jesus, so far, has disclosed with clarity where he is going and what he is going to do. Have you noticed how the disciples responded? In the first instance, it was Peter who pulled Jesus aside and said, No, absolutely not. You can't do this. The second time that Jesus gives this, they begin to argue about who's the greatest among them. And then we'll see in just a few moments what happens this third time. But notice the details of what Jesus says here in verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, he will rise. Son of man. Son of man. Jesus has used that terminology a lot to describe himself. And we remember from previous studies that the Son of Man is the one identified in Old Testament prophecy as the future ruler of the world. So here, this future ruler of the world, the authoritative Son of Man, notice this, will be delivered will be handed over involuntarily, placed into the custody of the hands of the Jewish religious establishment. And what's going to happen when this promised king gets into the hands of the Jewish religious establishment? The people who should have worshipped him? Well, the text says that they're going to condemn him to death. There will be an official court proceeding in which these people who should have loved him and should have welcomed him as their king will actually hand over this authoritative one to all people, the Gentiles. He's delivered. Again, you see it. Delivered and voluntarily handed over into the Gentiles, the pagans, the heathen, the godless. And what will they do with Israel's promised ruler of the world? They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And he will rise. Anybody familiar with Old Testament prophecy would have immediately seen the connections here in this prophecy with the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. While the Jews in their own minds could never really put together that their king would be one who would suffer and die, Jesus here, in the most clear way, says, the Son of Man, the authority, the ruler, will suffer and die. And that's the setting. That's the setting for the rest of the story that's about to take place. Keep that in mind. It's rather ominous. It's rather dark. But it highlights the need for further instruction. Let's notice the next movement of this story, and that is the self-interest of the disciples. The self-interest of the disciples in verses 35 to 41. And what we have here in this account is this story of James and John, and we see their immediate response. Notice it. They came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now let's just pause here for a second. Um, I don't know when that's ever an appropriate question (laughs) or statement. Much less to the Lord of the universe. Much less to the Lord of the universe who just said He's mere days away from suffering and dying. And yet we see for the third time in a row that these disciples do not get it. 
Jesus tells them what he's going to do, and they seem like nothing, I mean, they act like nothing happened. But even with these opening statements, we see something about these guys' personality that may explain how de- why they're so dense to this situation. I mean, we know that James and John were successful fishermen. They worked in the family-owned business. They undoubtedly knew what it took to be successful. It even highlights here that they're the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee being a well-known man at the time for his fishing business. It's a highly competitive industry. They know what it takes to compete. I would say that they would be something of in our own day, type A personalities, people who could go out there, get the job done. I mean, Jesus even renames them in chapter 3, verse 17, the sons of thunder. (laughs) Now that means something. Like they, They must have had some type of determination or grit about them. And the great thing about it is they take this and they apply it to their discipleship. They seem determined to to be the best at what God has called them to be. And I don't know how or why, but within God's determination, Jesus actually chooses James and John to be part of the inner circle. I mean, they're the ones that Jesus invites, along with Peter, to come see the special miracle in which Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. They're also the ones who accompany Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So there was something about these men that Jesus liked. It wasn't a bad thing, their ambition. But the question is just insensitive. I mean, literally interpreted, the first two Greek words here in English would be this. Do whatever we ask. It's not even a question, it's a command. We want you to do what we want. And then Jesus says, and notice his humble response, what do you want me to do for you? He's just got through predicting his death. They come up with this out of left field, hey, do for us what we want. And Jesus humbly asks, so what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, it's clear from this statement that they want to be the most important people in Jesus' coming kingdom. Now, for those of us as Americans, we don't typically think of sitting on the right or sitting on the left. You're like, who cares where you sit? But in that setting, in a court setting, in a regal setting, you would know what it's like for a king to have his throne positioned and then for the people sitting to his immediate right and left would be his highest advisors. They would be recognized as rulers, as significant. And that's exactly what's going on here. They're basically asking, to use our own terms, to be the CEO, the vice presidents of the company, if you will. When Jesus steps into His glory, when He comes into the moment of His kingly triumph, they are making sure that they're somewhere at the top of the list. They want to be in His cabinet, if you will. And this is just really awkward. I hope you can see the dissonance. Jesus talking about his suffering and death, and then here they are clamoring for a position in his coming kingdom. I would liken this to something of a father being on his deathbed and the family being around waiting for him to pass away, and then a couple of brothers try to sneak away over to the father's bedside while nobody's paying attention and negotiate a higher inheritance, more money. You would think, oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, it is. Or similarly, it's like a basketball team getting ready to play in a championship game and everybody's poured blood, sweat, and tears to make it to this moment and they haven't even played the game yet, but you've got a couple of guys arguing about who's going to be holding the trophy in the picture. I mean, that is what's going on. This is a really weird setting and Jesus is so gracious in His response to them. Notice in verse 39 or excuse me, in verse 38, he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, before we catch Jesus' response, you need to know a couple of things. One, what is the cup? And secondly, what is the baptism? I mean, naturally, you're asking that, or at least I was when I was reading this. The cup, what's the cup and what's the baptism? Well, the cup is a popular metaphor throughout the entire Old Testament for experiencing God's wrath and punishment for sin. 
While that may not seem like a popular metaphor to you, it was very recognizable for people who grew up reading and studying the Old Testament. For those of you who want to know more of those references, you could look at Psalm 75, 8, Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 38, Isaiah 51, 17 to 23, Lamentations 4, 21. If you want me to repeat that again, listen to the download. So he's asking them with this, are you willing to suffer like me? All right, that, that's the idea behind the cup. Are you, are you going to suffer like me? Are you going to endure the wrath and the scorn like me? And then you've got the term baptism. Now, baptism's an awesome picture that I've never really thought of before, but we'll understand it when you understand that the, word, the Greek word for baptize is bapto, which means to wash or to immerse. We're actually going to see some baptisms today. But the popular word for washing or immersion or dipping, in some cases, had this little intensive added to the end. So instead of bapto, it would be baptizo, which means it would be a thorough washing or a thorough dipping. Uh, In some cases, in the actual Greek language, it was referring to someone drowning, or it would refer to a ship that was sinking. I mean, it wasn't just a little dip under the water. It was an actual overwhelming by a flood of water. That was the literal meaning of the word baptism. Now, they used the word figuratively just like we did. Sometimes people using the Greek language would speak of being overwhelmed, baptized by sorrow, swamped by taxes, drowning in debt. You ever used those analogies before? About adversity? You ever just say like, I'm just, I'm drowning. If you tell somebody, I'm drowning, they know exactly what you mean as soon as you say it. You are overwhelmed with adversity. And so here Jesus is speaking of the suffering and death into which he was going to be plunged. And he's saying, like, are you prepared to endure the same adversity, to be overwhelmed by the same hardship that I am? So basically, he's telling James and John, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> You clearly have no conception of spiritual greatness, discipleship excellence, Christian competence. You don't know how this works. Do you have the ability to suffer and be humbled like me? Can you experience the same pain and sorrow that I experience? And then they say, confidently, in verse 39, we are able. Bring it on. I think would be the American rendition of that. I mean, there are... You've got to admit here that these men, they, they, with their go-and-get-it personalities, they're willing to affirm their ability, and while they may lack understanding and tact, they do not lack courage. <laughs> they're ready to move forward with this thing, and they're like, okay, well, if suffering is what we have to do, we're willing to suffer, we're willing to move forward. And that's why Jesus tells them and affirms in verse 39, the cup that I drink you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. This isn't, I mean, this is just a clear statement. He's acknowledging that his followers will suffer. They are going to endure hardship on on his account. And we know from church history and from reading the rest of the Bible that these two men do suffer that kind of hardship. Acts chapter 12, verse 2 records for us that uh, John himself, or excuse me, James, will be killed by the sword on account of Christ. And then church history records for us that John will be a political exile spending the last 30 years of his life on the Isle of Patmos away from his family. They would suffer. All of these men would eventually suffer for Jesus. They would live hard lives for him in this life. So he's acknowledging that, yeah, you're under a hardship, but here's what you need to understand, verse 40. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. This is what they need to know about greatness. God the Father will determine everyone's position and titles on that last day. This isn't your concern right now. You can't be worried about ultimate greatness here in this life. He's already prepared this for certain people. And you know what? We have an idea, those of us who have been here the last few weeks, we have an idea of who these people are, don't we? I mean, he's already said it. He said that the great, the prominent The excellent in that coming day will be the ones who are willing to suffer on account of Jesus. The one who would be willing to be last in this life. The one who would be willing to abandon all status like a child. 
And ultimately, this question just reveals the wrong attitude. They seem to be concerned for their self-advancement and not the present ministry of Jesus. Here's the point. You will not be great in God's kingdom by being concerned for your personal greatness. If you want the moral of the story, if you want to understand what this is all about, you will not be great in God's kingdom by being concerned for your own personal greatness. He's telling them that your political and private maneuvering is not going to work. Who sits on my right hand or on my left hand in the last day is God's concern. It's not yours. Abandon self-interest. Notice what happens in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Pride and concern for self-advancement always leads to personal conflict, doesn't it? So we see that it's not just these two guys that are concerned about self-advancement. It's not just these two that are self-interested, but even the rest of the ten are angry, not because they asked an inappropriate question, but more than likely because they think that these men got to jump on them and somehow they have the advantage now when they would have wanted the advantage. This would be an example of the other brothers in that deathbed scene overhearing the conversation of the two and being angry about it. And I'll just make a practical note here. If you read Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, you'll understand that any time conflict comes on the scene, it is a byproduct of someone who is concerned about advancing themselves. Conflict always comes from being concerned for self. If there's an abundance of personal pronouns in your vocabulary, I, me, mine, it's probably an indicator that things are unhealthy for you spiritually. That you're self-interested. That you, you're not great in God's eyes if your concern is for yourself. And we're going to see this affirmed for us in the final movement of this chapter. So let's review real quick, because I want you to catch the story so you could explain this to someone else. The, the first is the setting of suffering. Jesus is on his way to suffer and die and rise. The second movement has been the, the self-interest of the disciples. They're concerned about spiritual success. They want to be great in Jesus' eyes. And Jesus tenderly, he doesn't squash their ambition, but he subtly redirects it, and he tells them that self-interest isn't the way to go. And now we have the final movement of the text, and that's the service of Jesus. The service of Jesus. If self-interest is the error, service is the answer. Let's look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Now, I love what Jesus does there. He's capitalizing upon this burgeoning conflict to clarify the true nature of greatness for all disciples. So the guys are about to get into an all-out fight, and Jesus steps in and says, all right, you misunderstand greatness. Let me tell you what it's really about. Let me tell you how it actually works. And he does it like any good teacher does. He tells them what's wrong about it and what's right about it. Notice how he points out the wrong. He says, look, you know these examples of the Gentiles, these notable examples, these Gentiles, these pagan Romans, he, he points out them being the noted examples of authority because they were the one recognized as having all power and authority in those days. The Jews had been subjugated by the Roman Empire, and it was the Romans themselves who were exercising the authority and so when they thought about greatness and they thought about an exercise of power, they typically thought of Rome. And we even do the same today, historically. And the Romans were cruel in their exercise of leadership. I think that you'll remember from history that crucifixion was actually their most prominent tool. We know that it was the Persians who invented crucifixion, but it was the Romans who perfected it. And do you know what they did it for? It wasn't just any crime. It wasn't just a capital sentence. It was a crime specifically reserved for slaves who had gotten out of line. The idea was that the lowest of the low would be reminded of how low they should be by being crucified publicly, left to die 
on a cross so that all other people of low status would remember what would happen if they ever tried to challenge someone of higher authority. And that's why he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. Basically what you have there are two words that are known as like nouns, but they're just turned into verbs. I mean, the first one is the word kurios, is lord or ruler or master or owner or boss. So like, if I were to say, I am a boss, you would understand like, okay, this is his position, this is his title. But as soon as I start saying, or you say, he's bossing me around, you begin to understand that, oh, that's not a gracious exercise of authority. This is someone who's using his position in a way to get what he wants. The same thing with authority here. Jesus describes here this the present idea of greatness in that day was, was pretty simple. It was throwing your weight around. Might made right. You do whatever it takes to get other people to do what you want them to do. And defi- the definition of success, the definition of greatness in their eyes was simply forcing your desires upon others through an excessive display of skill or strength or cunning. If you could get what you wanted from other people, you were great. You were winning. You were successful. Money was just a means to that end. I think of adjectives like despotic, dictatorial, authoritarian, oppressive, domineering, exploitative. That's what they were. That's what they viewed as greatness. And Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. It is not so. This is not true. You have bought a lie if you think getting what you want from other people is greatness. Greatness in this world and greatness in the eyes of God are two separate things and they come in two totally separate ways. I was reminded of this last week when I was able to reconnect with a former partner in ministry. He was an elder at a church that me and Tanya used to attend, and he had served in the armed forces for his whole life. Uh, He had retired as a two-star general in the Marine Corps in 2011. And as a couple weeks ago, he was appointed by our president to be the new director of the Secret Service. Pretty powerful man. Now, I say all that to say that this particular gentleman knows a lot about leadership, both in the church and outside of it. Pastor, faithful elder, and then someone who knows the world of military leadership. So when I met him for lunch last year, obviously the topic of conversation with me, for me would be leadership. Are there any general transferable principles of leadership for a young pastor to be aware of stepping into a situation? And the lunch was pleasant, it was filled with practical insights, but his greatest warning and his most memorable reminder was clearly rooted in this text. This is what he said, never assume that a successful leader outside of the church would make a great leader for the church. Never assume that a successful leader outside of the church would make a great leader for the church. Now, why would he say that? Why? Because the values of Christianity are fundamentally different than the world. It doesn't work the same way. Success in following Jesus is not a matter of forcing your will upon others and subjugating them to your desires. It's not about getting ahead of someone else or climbing over them to get on top. Christianity is not about your personal advancement. And Jesus says, you've got to get this. If you want to know what it means to follow me, if you want to know where you're headed, if you're claiming to be a Christian, you need to understand it's not about you getting everything you want from other people. Now, I know this could seem obvious, but how many people do you know who have a relentless passion for getting their own way and still claim to be a Christian? Jesus says, it's not true. That's countercultural. That, that's not the way things work in my kingdom. If you are all about you, you cannot be all about Jesus. Does that make sense? And what I want to help you understand today is that it was your selfish ambition and my selfish ambition that got us into trouble in the first place. I mean, you go all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and there was something that God said they shouldn't have, but they wanted it because they felt like they deserved it, and 
and they go for it anyway, and that's the essence of sin. It is, I want more. I am more important than that. I need more. And so we do whatever we want to make ourselves happy, all in direct contradiction to God, who judges that with death. That's the penalty. And yet the beautiful thing is that's why Jesus came. That's why the suffering and death needed to take place. He was going to come and pay that. You messed it up, He's going to fix it. And if we simply repent of our sin and believe in Him, we can have that forgiveness. But the point that ultimately Jesus is making here is that self-interest is erroneous. That is not the way to greatness. If you're concerned for self, you're not following Jesus. Now, we need to know positively then what it looks like to follow Jesus. He gives the negative. It's not self-interest, but positively it's service. The service of Jesus. This is the example commended to you. You want to know if you're doing well in your Christian walk? Ask yourself, am I a servant the way Jesus defines it? Let's see how he defines it. Verse 43 in the second half. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So spiritual greatness is tied to one's servant status as confirmed by our Lord's service for others that we'll see in verse 45. Here's the deal. Greatness, success, whatever you want to call it, in the Christian life equals service. It equals service. And i got to say that when Jesus finally gives this big reveal, this key to spiritual greatness, His answer was unexpected by those people to say the least. The, the word He uses here, servant, is diakonos, from which we get our word deacon. It just simply meant someone who waited tables. You guys know what that means if you've ever worked in those positions. I have. Uh, it is, or can be, a demeaning task because it is your desire, or job, excuse me, to do whatever the person sitting at the table desires. <laughs> You're on your feet, they're sitting down. You do what they want. That's what your job is. And we know that that's not a big deal in our culture, but in an honor culture like the ancient Near East, where they were really big about titles and recognition and prominence and status, this was insult. Greatness is the table waiter? It didn't make any sense, but not only did it make sense, but it's like Jesus annoys them and then he turns it in a little more because now he says not only does greatness equal service, but if you want to be first, firstness equals lastness, being the slave of all. So the first word was diakonos, deacon, table waiter. That was an occupation or a job. But the second word that he uses here is doulos, bond slave. This wasn't a job. This was a place of life. This was an unavoidable tragedy. This means that you were the property of another person. That's insulting. That greatness is slavery? That the way to score, the way to be first, the way to climb the ladder, the way to advance is, is to place yourself underneath the unconditional will of not just another singular, but what does he say? Slave of all. This is too far. Notice he equates greatness with not just being a slave, but being a slave of all. Not just the select few people that you like. Because that's where everybody could pat themselves on the back and say, you know what, I really am nice to my friends. You know, I really am willing to give up and, and, you know, care for those who I like. But when it gets down to all, all kinds of people, no matter where they come, that, that's greatness? It can seem impossible. It gets worse. He drops a final bomb that totally obliterates their human perceptions of greatness with verse 45 by presenting his own example. And he, this is the end of it. He says, verse 45, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's your picture. You want a picture? Doesn't everybody like a good picture? Here it is. The Son of Man. Remember the Son of Man? Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I encourage you to write it down if you want to know where that title came from. But let me quote it for you. It is the Son of Man in that particular passage who will be, and I am reading from the Word of God here, will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages, listen to this, should serve Him. God Almighty is going to give the Son of Man all these people and they will one day serve Him. It is that Son of Man. 
It is this divine authority who would one day be served that will ultimately here in this life serve. It's insane. Not only will He serve to the greatest extent by giving His life a ransom for many, but He's going to serve to the uttermost. There is no greater way to serve than to lay down your life. You see the word ransom there. Typically we think of that as being a price paid to free someone from a kidnapping. But in that world, it wasn't kidnapping ransom. It was more of the the price used to free someone from slavery or bondage. So even though slavery was a position that you were born into, it was actually something that you could be bought out of at great cost. It was the price paid for the release of someone. And so this is the first time in all of Mark that we see the purpose of Jesus' death explained. What is it? That He would be a ransom. That He would give His life in such a way to pay off something. To liberate us from something. It is assumed in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that all of us, that mankind is under bondage and in peril. And that Jesus will pay the ultimate price to set them free. Now, you've probably never thought of that if you're here today and you're visiting. I'm not in bondage to anything. I do whatever I want. But you really are. You're in bondage to two things this morning, whether you realize it or not, and you'll see this throughout the Bible. One is to sin, and the other is to its consequences, death. I say that you're in bondage to sin because as much as you can try, you cannot be the person you want to be. For a cautionary tale of that, look no further than the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. If you've ever read it, it's his attempts at moral greatness. And yet he gets to the end of his life and he realizes he could never cultivate the virtues that he wanted. He was enslaved. And I also say that you're a slave to death because even as I was praying this morning, we all die. We're all feeling the effects of that. We're fighting back against it the best we can, but nobody's been able to overcome it yet except for Jesus. You're in slavery to that. You're in bondage to that. You have no way out from that except for Jesus giving His life as a ransom. And notice this, for many. It doesn't say for all. So I don't want you to naturally assume that, okay, well, Jesus just died for everybody. He died for me, and I'm going to be okay whether I believe in Him or not. No, He died for many. He died for those who would believe in Him, for those who would follow Him. It's not like we get to the end of time, and there's going to be this great judgment day, and then all of a sudden Jesus will say, well, I didn't really mean all that stuff I said about hell and repentance. All of you, welcome in. It is only those who appropriately respond to Jesus who will receive the saving benefits of His death. But let's stay on task. Jesus dying for us in this way is the picture of greatness. Yes, you need to know this to be saved. But I want you to know that if you want to serve with excellence, if you want to be what God wants you to be in this church, in your family, in your work, you look to Jesus and His sacrifice as your picture of greatness. This is success. Flip over quickly with me, for those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, all of you don't need to do this, to Philippians chapter 2. If you're visiting today, don't feel the pressure to turn. You can listen, but if you know your Bible well, turn with me to Philippians. And I referenced verses 3 and 4 just a minute ago, but... I want you to see that this is a universal truth. You want to know what the picture is? You're ever struggling to figure out, what does it look like to be a successful Christian mother? What does it look like to be a successful Christian husband? What does it look like to be a successful Christian employee or employer? Notice Paul's commands in verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) No self-interest. Notice he keeps saying, let each of you look not on his own interest, but also to what? (laughs) The interest of others. Now, it keeps going. He gives them these commands, and then he says in in verse 5, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What about Christ? What mind? What what did Jesus do? Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it doesn't stop there. You're like, okay, well that's the picture. But notice the greatness that follows it. Sometimes we stop the verse too early. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the picture? This is a perfect parallel to what he's describing here. Greatness is selflessness. Selflessness is pictured in Jesus as evidenced by the fact that he gave it all but was ultimately exalted to the highest position. That's what it means to be great. One of my favorite non-Christian books over the years has been Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm sure many of you have read that before. Again, it's not a Christian book, but it is loaded with practical tips, uh, general principles of wisdom, just kind of how life works, and some good observations. And there's one particular exercise in Covey's book that I've seen commended time and time again in, in various business leadership books that I've read through the year. And you'll be familiar with it. it. It pictures the response that I think this text intends for us to make. The exercise is simple. Covey, or even his contemporaries, will invite you to sit down and think about this beautiful fall day in which you're walking up to what seems to be an immaculately cared for church building, green grass, beautiful blooming flowers in the fall of the year. And he says, imagine going into this particular church building and you hear this Uh, beautiful music from up front, rather dour, but still well played. And as you go, as you sit into the back and you see all the other people who are gathered in this particular congregation, you can tell that things are are dreary, they're, they're down. And then the pastor gets up and the men come forward rolling in a casket into the aisle and you find out none other than to discover that it's your own funeral. And the question becomes this. What would you have that pastor and those people say of you on that day? It's a great exercise. What is it that when I get to the end of my life that I want people to know me for? I mean, work backwards. Figure out, you're going to die. You're going to end up there one day. So let's just go ahead and think about what we want to be known for by the time that we die. You know what I think this text clarifies for us? That in addition to being a good father or mother or being a hard worker or being a good citizen or the Christian, one of the things that we would want others to say of us on that final day is that he was a servant. She was a servant like Jesus. Here's a man or a woman who poured out his life for the eternal well-being of others. You know, that's my prayer for you as a pastor. That should be our prayer for one another as a church, that we are constantly weeding out selfishness and commending service in every way, shape, and form. So practically, what would this invitation to greatness look like in us this week if we were to respond to it appropriately? What are some concrete expressions of success and the way Jesus defines it here? Well, first and foremost, it would be to submit yourself to His Lordship. If you want to know what that looks like, it would be being a servant. Now, what does that look like? Well, I think there's several realms in which we could see Christ-like service exhibited. And I just want to give some few simple examples of this. These might be some good questions for you to, to ask on the car ride home or to meet with another brother or sister in Christ about this week. Success as a Christian in the home. Here's the question. Do you manifest Christ-like service in your marriage? We're talking about marriage. Do you view that relationship as being about you and what you want and the happiness that you can achieve? Or are you in this for the spiritual well-being of your spouse? 
That's the difference. Would your spouse be able to say the same to whatever you ask? I would say for parents and children, whether you're young or old, whether the kids are in the house or out, do you live for the eternal well-being of the others in your family, or is it all about your way, your will, your wishes, your desires? And I will again repeat that conflict in the home is clear evidence that someone is insisting on his or her way as opposed to investing into the eternal well-being of others. There's another realm in which we could consider whether or not we see this Christ-like servant service in our lives, and that is in the church. Success as a Christian in a church. Some questions you could ask yourself is, why are you even here today? Why do you come How did you pick this place today? Why do you keep coming back? Is it because of what we have to offer you and how this people makes you feel? Or do you see this as a place in which you can contribute to the spiritual well-being of others? Hear me well. When I read Philippians 2, 1 to 11, and I think about doing nothing out of selfishness or vainglory, those are really pertinent questions about our activity and life as a church together. Are you self-interested or are you a servant like Jesus? And then finally, there's success as a Christian in every other category. These same questions could be asked about your work, your, your schooling, your friendships, your retirement. Do you sense a willingness for you to do whatever it takes, to pay whatever it costs to see the eternal needs of others met? Or do you use your authority, your capacity, and your abilities for you? They're to be used to serve others like Jesus. Every breath I take, every dime I make, every move I make should be an act of service for the eternal good of others. This is what success in the Christian life looks like. This is what spiritual greatness looks like. This is Jesus' definition of success. For you. So if you would be great in God's eyes, you would exchange self-interest for service. Self-centeredness for the Savior's agenda. Looking to meet the eternal needs of others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make us servants like you. Are there some who have not submitted to you today? They're still living for themselves. I pray they would find you to be more glorious, more sweet, more attractive than the life that they have called out for themselves. Or for those of us who have submitted to you, I pray that we'd manifest Christ-like service, a sensitivity, a desire, a capacity, a willingness to care for the spiritual needs of others. pray that we'd see that in our congregation. And in closing, I want to thank you for that which I do see for this army of servants that gather here on a regular basis, are so unselfishly giving of themselves for the sake of the gospel. I pray we'd be encouraged in the areas in which we are already serving you, that challenge us in the areas in which we have opportunity to grow. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.